Richard Stallman is not paying your bills. Here we go. Today is Sunday, June 19th, 2016, and this is episode 163 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hi, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing well. Sorry we missed each other last week. Yep. No worries. You know, that... It was pretty tragic to have that toddler break into the llama pen and attack our llamas like that. It's yeah, that was uh, not good. I mean, our, but, our but we have new llamas now. So. That's true. And our lawyers have asked we say nothing further on that topic until the lit- litigation is resolved. <laughs> oh, dear. So, um, so yes, yeah, sorry for uh, last week. And uh, hopefully we will be back on track again. Um, just before we get into our stories, a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of, <clears throat> excuse me, those of our employers. So, uh, so getting into our stories, I, I actually came prepared with sound effects for this one. Here you go. Wow. There we go. Wow, so, I'm I'm hiding under my desk. Yeah, well you should because this first story is super duper bad. Actually in the story it says this vulnerability has a massive security impact, probably the widest impact in the history of Windows. Wait, let me ask you for some key questions. Okay. First. Yes. Does it have a name? It does. It has the name Bad Tunnel. Does it have a logo? Not that I've seen. Oh, well, how bad can it be? I don't know. It doesn't have a song either. Well, I... There's there's no celebrity spokesperson. I, there's no song. Is is there a concert to, you know, raise money for the victims, even? <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> this story is uh, from darkreading.com, and the title is Windows Bad Tunnel Attack Hijacks Network Traffic. Uh, so, yeah, this is a... Uh, uh, kind of a um, potentially bad bug. I'm. I I I feel pretty confident that um, we've seen plenty of worse Windows bugs in the past. Um, yeah, like like Vista. <laughs> I was gonna go me, but okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, so anyway, th- this uh, this this story here, the vulnerability here, was detected by Yang Yu, who is. A uh, uh, an employee of a security research company called Tencent, who I had not heard of before in China, and uh, apparently this particular problem manifests itself because it's uh, it's taking advantage, uh, as far as I can tell, of normal functionality, kind of strung together in bad ways. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, this is this is almost reminded me of like UPnP on yeah. steroids. Yeah, Try, it's it's a little bit of convenience being, right? You know, kind of subjugated to badness, sort of thing. It's Windows trying to be helpful and people going, "Oh, look, you're dumb." Right. Yeah. So, you know, basically, a uh, an attacker running a malicious website, uh, either by tricking you to to visit the site or with some kind of a malicious document, you maybe you might say malicious link, um, can in fact. I'm going to get some tweets about that one. Um, you think you will? Uh, well. You're so vain, you think this joke's about you? It usually is. Okay. So uh, anyway, um, you, you as an attacker, commit someone to connect to a web server that you are running, which is listening on UDP 137. Uh, the, uh, the victim will try to reach out, and you are effectively, as the attacker, trying to force feed some uh, NetBIOS information back, which effectively at that point allows you to use a WPAD, which you know we're all maybe lots of us are pretty familiar with. That's the uh, the Windows 
uh, proxy <laughs> transparent proxy configuration. I don't remember yeah, what the acronym is. Yeah, it's Windows Proxy Auto Discovery. There you go. Yep. And anyway, you it it would allow you effectively to alter the traffic of the victim, the, the you know the network flow of the tr the victim, and get you basically put yourself in in uh, line. So not not a great thing. Uh, again, I don't think it's um, you know maybe worthy of a air raid siren, but whatever. And and yet it was. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, oh wait, here wait, I gotta do it because that's right, Adobe Flash. Oh man, you should just leave the air raid siren on all the time then. If we're gonna talk about Adobe Flash. <laughs> so so yes. Uh, Flash Player has uh, yet another significant uh, exploit or vulnerability that is um, being exploited. It was, in fact, being exploited before the patch came out. This is not a repeat of last month, the month before, the month before that, the month before that, and the month before that, mind you. This is. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I do want to say back on that, that last uh, thing, that last story. Mm -hmm. And this, this kind of made me, uh, re reminded me of it. You really do want to control your egress. Oh yeah, right. And so, so if you th in, in that last in the context of that, that last story, if you are, you know, if you're if you're blocking, I, it's not entirely clear to me, but I believe if you're blocking port one thirty seven outbound, I think it really mitigates that particular attack. And and in the case of this, I really well, think most organizations should be. Blocking flash. Yeah, I read it as a malicious insider, or if somebody's got a foothold, they could launch this sort of man-in-the-middle type attack inside your organization if they're already inside. Yep, that's true. That's how, how I read it. But. Well, I but but that's if you're inside, WPAD gives you all sorts of other well, opportunities. True. Look, man, <laughs> so. security firms got to publish papers. Well, that's true. how how else are they relevant? Well, in fact, that 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 report was uh, was was pimping a uh, black hat talk, I believe. Oh, oh. Yeah. shocking! So you said this guy was a security researcher in China. China, right? yep. Not the one recently arrested for stealing IBM secrets, is he? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Different Chinese security researcher. Well, I'm I'm, a, I'm assuming there's quite a, a few <laughs> more, Chinese more, people. More, more than one, yeah. You're yeah. probably right. I just was trying to be clever. I failed. It didn't work. No. Anyway, back to Flash. Back to Flash. Yes. So uh, not not a whole lot to say here because you know again it's super bad. Uh, patch or or better yet, remove it and block it. Yeah, I've started tweeting never Flash hashtag whenever I can. It, it is interesting. I do think Flash is still continuing to slowly die. Chrome is now going to ship without it active. Uh, I think in the next rev or two, uh, we're getting there slowly but surely. Uh, the problem, just sort of to throw this out there, is everyone's like, oh, replace it with HTML5. Well, yes. However, there's no guarantee that we're not going to have similar security challenges with the similar functionality built into HTML5 um, with the way it currently looks today. So to be determined if that's really going to be a better option or not. Uh, the other thing is there's still a lot of applications out there, especially in the enterprise, that are dependent upon Flash. It, it, we, you know, the irony is... Both that and Flash and Java, a lot of them are <laughs> security tools. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at my current gig, our CISO's like, just uninstall Flash. We're like, we can't. Like, 18 of our security tools use it. He's like, gosh, darn it. <laughs> and, you know, other things in the organization that are important use it. And they have to be basically rewritten to not use Flash to get rid of it. But you can do things. You can turn on... Um, you know, click to activate, and you can. There are other things you can do to configure so that it's not as susceptible to a drive-by download or, uh, you know, other random stuff that may not happen. Of course, most users may just get click happy or, you know, you know, activation fatigue and just turn it on whenever they see that anyway. But... I want to see my cat videos. Absolutely. So yeah, Flash is. Yep. It's. You would think by now. By now. They would fund. I, I thought they built in a whole new architecture to Flash recently too. That sort of sandboxed and stopped a bunch of types of attacks. But no, nope, this one had three dozen security holes. Just, <laughs> they they did, and for a while there, it was you know it. it I think we went almost a year, if I, if memory serves, 
without any significant problems. And then I, I think basically what happened was people kind of found where the barn door was <laughs> on the <laughs> on the new protections they built, and everybody's running through it. And on this one, we saw active exploits of a zero day. Yes. So uh, they were limited, but targeted, uh, as far as we know. They usually are, yeah. But that's a pretty big deal. If you see active exploitation of a zero day, that's, you right. know. And, and the other thing that, that I think it challenges some enterprises is they want to test patches in a test group before they deploy widespread. The challenge there is that these issues happen so rapidly that you incur a lot of risk if you slow down patching on something like Flash or, or Java. That's right. And I, I get that it breaks stuff, uh, but there's a risk Either way, you either take the risk of getting popped or you take the risk of breaking stuff and rolling back. Personally, I'd rather shotgun this stuff out to my user population as quickly as I can and deal with the broken applications as a one-off help desk issue. But I'm a security guy, so that's how I look at things. Yeah, you know, the, I, there's a, the, the problem is there's a spectrum of broken, right? Because we've seen in the past, like some of the Microsoft patches have actually broken the endpoint. Yeah, so. to be fair, Microsoft patches is a different story. I'm just talking Flash and Java. Well, that's, yeah, okay. Yeah, Flash, Microsoft patches, you probably do need to, to test. In fact, during Patch Tuesday uh, this month, there was something that broke a bunch of GPO stuff yes. that people are still figuring out uh, that, yeah, I wouldn't just shotgun Microsoft patches out there into the world. Uh, I would test those first, <laughs> that's for sure. But for, for Java and Flash... I would encourage organizations to move to a much faster, more aggressive upgrade cycle on those if they can. Indeed. So that 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 story, in fact, came from uh, Brian Krebs, and the next one comes from Brian Krebs too. And that this one is titled uh, "Banks Credit Card Breach at CC's Pizza." So for those who are not aware, CC's Pizza is a I'll say it inexpensive uh, pizza buffet place here in the U.S. We're using the term pizza loosely. <laughs> Pizza-like substance. But it's all you can eat for like, what, six bucks? Something like that. It's it's not terrible. Yeah. It's, you know. Anyhow. Well, we, we grew up on White Castle. Come on, who are we to judge? <laughs> Touche. All right. So, uh, so, so this is like, you know, the, the well-worn story here, you know, apparently common point of purchase, credit card, fraud points back to a breach at CC's Pizza. There is one little interesting caveat, which is it looks like the initial infiltration point was people posing as technical support specialists. Yeah, and, and potentially uh, potentially th uh, also involving TeamViewer. Yeah, that's a little unclear, but it wasn't just a it wasn't necessarily a Target or Home Depot where they broke in and got to the centralized uh, management repository for uh, the POSs and pushed malware out. They They Looks like they did more of a social engineering attack in this case, but I know that's not the point of the story. But just to yeah, so CC's CC's Pizza basically said, you know, hey, we outsource that whole stuff, you know, that whole business to uh, a third party called Champion Management, and apparently Champion didn't get back to Brian Krebs, but uh, Brian, in fact, found that there's another company called Data Point. Who uh, who is apparently the the credit card processor for CC's Pizza? No, no, no. They're the point of sale vendor. Thank you, point of sale vendor. Big difference. Sorry. Yep. Thank you for mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. correcting me there. Yep. And uh, anyway, um, uh, so in doing research, Brian found that apparently uh, Google gives you a warning when you when you uh, search for them <laughs> on uh, on Google. Uh, it warns you that their site might be, may be hacked. So. The datapoint.com, the, the point-of-sale vendor. Datapointpos.com. Their their website. Yeah. At one point, was considered a serving malware by Google. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, the, um, you know, the, uh, so I'll say Brian kind of crossed swords a little bit with the, with a spokesperson from this datapoint company saying that, the, that uh, spokesperson basically said, you know, the Secret Service came out here. Looked looked at us, did some scans. I don't know what that means. Said that you know there was, I guess, no problem, and that this uh, the attacks have apparently been traced to quote social engineering slash team viewer breaches because stores from several POS vendors 
let supposed text into conduct support. Nothing to do with any of our, meaning data point, support mechanisms, which are highly restricted and well within PCI compliance. So, um, so that's all interesting, but the story does not get entertaining until you read the comments. Now, typically we tell people never read the comments. I'm going to tell you, read the comments. But, in general, read the comments on Brian Krebs' site, and specifically for this story. Yeah. Carry on. So, so um, apparently, uh, it's not entirely clear to me what positions these people hold, but there are a number of people who are desperately trying to uh, um, repair the brand image of uh, DataPoint uh, in the comments section. And uh, and not doing a very good job, I'll say. Uh, it it is it it's an entertaining read. I, I I won't do it justice. You really need to read it yourself. It's well worth it. But yeah, it is uh, how not to do PR. Yeah, and, and by the way, that is uh, this is a good this that is a very good point. It was one thing I had neglected to to bring up that this is a great example of what not to do. I mean, you th these guys, even though even if they're right, by the way. And I'm not saying I really don't know what the facts of the case are here, but even if they're right, they're not looking very good here. You know, they're they're basically trying to dem they're trying to deflect, basically saying, "Oh, that website that that Brian found that was just like a just like a placeholder, <laughs> you know, not important." And and everybody, you know, all the all the respondents are saying, "Oh, this is a reflection of you." And <laughs> Anyway, it's yeah, it, it's funny too when when they start getting into it. A uh, couple couple things to note here. Brian is a journalist, and I have nothing but respect for Brian. So when you start going after him in his comments, of, and you're a representative of the company, that is gold for him. He wants you to do that because he it, he happily engages with you and starts just very professionally, but just laying down the facts, <laughs> encountering this guy who supposedly somehow works. And the way the way it, it plays out here, it sounds like Brian knows who this guy is, too. So there's almost some validation that whoever this guy is talking for, you know, data point is is legit because of the way Brian responds back to him. Seems like he knows who he is. I, I could be overly reading into that, but... It's funny, too, because there's still uh, websites, like web portions of the Datapoint POS website. Things like datapointpos.com slash buying Viagra with no prescription. <laughs> um, oops. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yep. So this Todd guy, the, the Todd, just he's logged in or Todd, apparently is somebody representing um, Datapoint. Yeah, and if you if you read through there, there's it, it's pretty clear there's three or four different people who are oh, yeah. who are yeah. clearly representatives or somehow associated with the company. But anyway, it's 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 just a, it's a great example of what not to do. I mean, you know, you you do a lot better off just going in there and saying, you know what, <laughs> glad you pointed that out. We're, we're gonna we're gonna get it taken care of. Or have a very well thought out, crafted, vetted message that you send to Brian for him to publish or whatever. Yeah, it, <laughs> don't do it off the cuff. Trying to <laughs> trying to pick at his uh, his story is just not going to go well for you. Yeah. All right. So uh, moving on, our next story comes from the IEEE Security.org site, and this one is uh, it's a it's an academic report from some people at the University of Michigan. And uh, actually, one of our listeners asked us to talk about it last week, and since we didn't have a show, we're talking about it this week. And uh, the title is A2, Analog Malicious Hardware. And it's a, it's a probably, uh, well, it was way over my head at parts. <laughs> um, but it's, it's 20 pages of an academic paper. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, non-trivial. Yeah, right. And uh, if I'll, I'll net it out, right? So, um. The idea here is that the the researchers were trying to find a way to implement at a circuit level a backdoor in a in a microprocessor, and 
And effectively, they came up with a pretty clever design that gets around some of the weaknesses of other backdoor strategies. So there's, you know, there's there's been two common avenues where, you know, either the the company that's making the chip uh, makes an alteration to the design before they actually print it, and that can often be found through, you know, X-ray uh, analysis or or some other forensic techniques. Uh, and then uh, the other way is what's called uh, dopet trojing, trojaning. And uh, basically that is where they are, um, th the layout of the circuit looks correct. However, they apply too much doping compound to, um, you know, particular areas or particular transistors. And that forces them to stay on and you really can't see it you know, with uh, with something like an X-ray, and and but you know, basically in, in active use, that particular transistor doesn't turn on or off. It's always on or always off, and so that you know that in in turn uh, creates the back door. This particular technique, actually, what it does is it it um, it's pretty clever. It creates a capacitance, so so they kind of reroute lines, I guess. Um, t together in a way that doesn't look out of the ordinary. And they effectively create a capacitor between uh, one line, which might control something like, uh, you know, the, the, the privilege, uh, uh, privilege execution of the, the processor, uh, and then something that doesn't fire very often in normal conditions. And so what, what they, uh, this particular attack relies on is uh, rapid triggering of a line that normally doesn't trigger quickly and that causes voltage to build up across the capacitor to that other line which will fire a high so now the uh, the attackers knowing this can can you know effectively send some kind of a workload through the processor knowing that after a certain amount of uh, you know uh, state flips uh, the the uh, the other line will go high, and you know obviously it's really dependent on the implementation of what that can result in. But you know typically that would allow them something like you know, to elevate the privilege of a process. So it's it's pretty clever. You wouldn't really be you wouldn't really be able to tell this with the two common um, testing techniques, which are uh, you know physical analysis or in X-rays or uh, they they also have a kind of a bench setup where they you know they, they effectively fuzz the uh, the processor with with information or you know, with uh, uh, different states to to make sure that it it does what it's expected to do and and apparently this you know is, is very difficult to detect so I don't know if you know possibly knowing that this exists maybe, maybe somebody will come up with a new way to detect it, but it's pretty clever and uh, kind of points out that the world is a scary place. And at some level, um, we, you know, we, we have to trust, uh, we have to trust components at a, at a certain level. And that's um, a, a difficult position. In completely unrelated news, Jerry will be marketing a new magic black box that detects this attack. That is very true. Yes. Stay tuned. No. <laughs> This goes to a fundamental problem, which is that once that's a little sort of abstract, but at the same time more definitive is once an endpoint is owned by a bad guy, however they do it, how can you ever trust that endpoint again? And and how do you how can you trust any of the software utilities or detection or security uh, utilities on that host that's been owned, especially if it's owned at a very very core level? which goes back to the fundamental problem of detecting some sort of malicious behavior based on its activity on the wire, uh, and by that I mean network activity, which may possibly be one way you could detect some sort of anomalous behavior based on this sort of esoteric attack, but it still goes to the same fundamental problem, which is that once a box is owned, you can't trust any of the code on the box, which means you can't trust any of the software on the box, which means you can't trust any of the security software on the box. So how do you know that something bad's going on? You've got to go back to stuff it cannot manipulate, which is uh, somehow it's network behavior with our interconnected world today of, of attacks. Yeah, I'm just babbling at this point. Let's move on. <laughs>
I picked up on that. So moving on, our uh, our next story comes from Secure List, and the title is Xdetic, the shady world of hacked servers for sale. So uh, the, the story here is that apparently Kaspersky, I think that's Kaspersky, right? I hope it is. Uh, found that uh, found a marketplace and basically an underground marketplace where uh, bad actors can buy and sell access to compromised servers. And in this particular marketplace, they found at at one point earlier this year seventy thousand uh, different servers for sale, and uh, most of them, I guess, costing as as little as six dollars, um, including servers located in a European Union country government network. So that's uh you know that's that's a bargain, right? And uh, cheaper cheaper than a colo. It it really is. And uh apparently they the this is a fairly sophisticated operation because they, you know, this marketplace it's not just a dumb, you know, I want to I want to buy and sell access to servers. They actually call some uh, some telemetry about the systems, you know, not only where it's at and whose networks it's on, but also what kind of software does it have? You know, it's looking for uh, a, a whole host of different kinds of software. A lot of it either point of sale software or tax software or, un- un- I guess unsurprisingly, things like Proxifier where, you know, they would be able to, um, you know, route, traffic through so basically using it as a proxy so um, I- interesting this kind of to me points out that it's you know it is useful this, I, I think this is this is uh, in the area of threat intelligence right this is one of the areas of threat intelligence that is useful I and mean, I think there's a lot that potentially aren't useful for a lot of organizations but knowing that you have a compromised server that's evaded all of your other defenses, is a pretty handy thing to know. Yeah, absolutely. And is there a service out there looking at these sites? And how do they know, you know, this legitimate? And so these guys, and what I'm saying by that is these guys who run these sites have got to then do counterintelligence to make sure that there aren't services out there sniffing around to warn the folks that they've got the pop boxes on. Uh, yep. Absolutely. So it's that's a bit of arms race in and of itself of these uh, darknet sites trying to hide themselves from legitimate law enforcement or whatnot while still being available to you know shady operators. Indeed, indeed. So um, yeah, there's... and if if you're on a blue team, it might be useful to know about these and sort of start checking for your own networks from time to time. Yeah, that's maybe good... not this particular site, but that's this sort point. of thing. Good point. There are uh, that the, somebody did post uh, pastebin links to all the IPs that were on the uh, allegedly in this marketplace, so you can go and go and look uh, look that up on your own. Um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of them, and they're not in any order. So good luck. I'd be curious how long a, a server stays popped on average, like how well, long they can maintain ownership of a box. Well, they they talk they do talk a little bit about that. They said that. Um, in May of 2016, there were seven seventy thousand six hundred twenty-four servers uh, from four hundred sixteen unique sellers in one hundred seventy-three countries. Uh, but just before that, in March 2016, there were fifty-five thousand. So, um, you know, it's uh, there's really no good good sense on how what the churn rate is. But you can see that there's uh, you know some growth. Well, and that could be once they sold access to one person, they might take it out of the the organization. But well, that's that is uh, that's true. And actually, this uh, I thought it was pretty clever. You know, the, this form. I'm trying to find the exact quote in here. Uh, this form apparently provided um, support, right? So, so uh, let's see. Uh, instead, they've created a marketplace where the network of affiliates can sell access to compromised servers. If truth be told, the people behind Xdetic have created what appears to be a quality service. The forum even includes live technical support, support tools, or special tools to patch hacked servers to allow multiple RDP sessions, and profiling tools that upload information about the hacked servers into the Xdetic database. Well, that's helpful. Uh, I mean... They're uh, 
yeah, they're they, they're running quite a quite a service there. Mm-hmm. So uh, so yeah, um, but uh, you know, the, I guess the other takeaway too is. I, I and I've I think I've seen this or you know, lots of people have seen this coming for a while. There's a you know th- there's a commoditization happening in the attack, the initial compromise versus the you know the the, the post compromise world. And so this is uh, I think an example of that where there people can specialize now in the criminal world. They can specialists in penetrations can go off and and you know compile. Uh, an army of compromised systems that they in turn sell for whatever purpose. And then, uh, and then, you know, if, if you happen to, you know, specialize in some area of, uh, you know, criminal operations, you can go and find systems that you can buy, which have, you know, effectively the exact profile of what you're looking for. You don't have to go and run a big, you know, phishing campaign anymore because you, you're just buying access to systems you know you want. Yeah, or a specific organization you want to go after. Right. Yeah. I, I need to go target, you know, whatever, Bob's Moving Company. Let's go see if they've got any pop servers. Yep. So moving on to our next story, which comes from the WashingtonBoast.com, and the title is Goosefer 2.0 Claims Credit for DNC Hack. So this happened last week while we were uh, out CrowdStrike actually uh, reported went out with a big report about how uh, Russia Russian state-backed hackers had uh, compromised the Democratic National Committee's uh, network and stolen some documents uh, related to Donald Trump. You know, it's basically like competitive intelligence. And, uh, you know, so, so CrowdStrike, you know, did the yay us, we found it, us, you know, it's super complicated attack run by nation state hackers, in, uh, you know, in, in, in Russia, aren't we awesome? And uh, so in response to that, allegedly, the, uh, the hacker who stole the documents has uh, released, a, 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 I guess, a bit of a press release. And uh, it says that he is calling himself Guccifer 2.0 because, you know, the Guccifer 1.0 is now in, I think he's wait, awaiting trial or awaiting sentencing. No, he pled guilty, I thought. Okay. I'll look it up over time. Maybe he's, maybe he's awaiting sentencing. He's awaiting something. Uh, anyway, so Guccifer 2.0, you know, Guccifer 1.0, that was the guy that stole all of the documents from, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush and, and others. Uh, I think even Hillary Clinton, too. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, anyway, uh, so Guccifer 2.0, in in an effort to prove that um, you know he is who he or she is, who he or she says she is, uh, released in fact the documents that were uh, alleged to have been stolen. Uh, so those are now out in the open, and also said by the way that um, it wasn't hard, and and that he's an individual person not associated with Russia and. Uh, this particular story basically is saying uh, that despite what Guccifer has come out and said, they are standing by their story and going down with the ship that this, in fact, was Russian hackers. And that this guy is just now launching a disinformation campaign to shift the goal or the uh, the attention away from Russia. And I saw in some other story somewhere, it might have been on Twitter, that... Uh, often when these sorts of attribution issues come out, that the FBI will sometimes say, well, we're not sure we buy that or agree with that. Well, in this case, the FBI has been silent, so that means they must agree with CrowdStrike. Totally. So here's here's my thought. I don't know if CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike is correct or not in their attribution. I do know attribution is hard. And I also know that it's a lot sexier and a lot more marketing friendly to identify a nation state attacker than a lone kid sitting in his basement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you never, so, you, you never really expect them to come out and try to contest your attribution you know. either. <laughs> so if I had to bet, I, I have said many, many, many times in this program that Things that are attributed to nation states are not 
as difficult or don't rise to a level of difficulty that require a nation state, in my opinion. There are some that certainly do. You know, Stuxnet is a good example. But from what little we know about this, and just looking at the type of technology involved, there's no reason that this had to be a nation state. Now, do I know all? The, do I have access to all the information CrowdStrike has? Of course not. So I'm just saying it is definitely conceivable, though, that CrowdStrike potentially overreached. But I don't know for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess on the one hand, it's it's not hard to think that Russian intel that, that foreign intelligence agencies would be poking around in uh, in the network of a you know of a political party in the U.S. That doesn't seem terribly surprising. And in fact, I think the if you go and read some of the other reports, CrowdStrike's actually saying they they found two separate and apparently independent. Uh, Russian hacking teams. In, uh, so if we, if we play that out, that would indicate that Russia would prefer Donald Trump in office over Hillary Clinton? Well, actually, I have read that very thing, right? Because they, you know, the, the allegation or the the thinking is that whoever whoever did this is obviously on the side of Donald Trump because, you know, basically now all of the, the Democrats... Um, you know, bullets, I guess, are now out in the open, and and they, they you know, there's there's really nothing left for them to to come out with uh, later in the in the campaign, and so uh, that's you know, to that's to his advantage, um, and and oh, and oh, by the way, you know, Donald Trump and Russia are kind of you know not buddy buddy, but there's a mutual admiration society going on between him and Putin. I don't know. It, it's a big stretch for me to think that this was... Uh, if it was Russian intelligence, don't you think it'd be more useful for them to sit on that information and use it to manipulate things than it is to just dump it? Well, I think that... I, th I think it was Dave Itell in in his... Uh, he runs that Daily Dave mailing list, which, by the way, mm -hmm. if, you're not a, if you're not a member of, it's it's worth uh, subscribing to. I, th I think they'll let anybody in. They let me in. I mean, <laughs> that should sell you right there. And um, you're known to chase people off Twitter. I, that's very true. <laughs> it's very true. You are the cause of the llama drama two weeks ago, I think, mister. I, I was, you're right. Inadvertently. Yeah. So um, uh, anyway, the, the, I, think he was, I think it was Dave Vitale was, was pointing out that it's extraordinarily rare for a nation state who is known to have stolen some data to actually release it. So kind of like you said, they, they tend to sit on it. You know, one of the only known instances is actually the the whole North Korea Sony thing. And you know how I feel about that. Yeah, no, you're still a truther. I get it. I am absolutely. So I don't know. I I am not sophisticated enough to know the machinations of Russian intelligence, but I, I yeah. I'm just skeptical that this is a Russian intelligence driven action. Well, I I think that um, you know there there's the not only the tactics. And, and procedures, right, and the tools, which can be which can be common and, and can be copied between an individual actor and, and a nation state. I, I I suspect just kind of reading the the report, it sounded like CrowdStrike has kind of drawn a line, right? So they've been investigating other cases where it's been, I, I suppose, through some way known that the the person or the group responsible was this uh, particular russian group and so then they see the same tactics coming from the same sources using the same tools and they're saying well it's probably the same people which i suppose is not a bad um not a bad guess uh, but you know uh, again like you said we don't know all the details i will say and this has come up i can't remember the other story that came up um recently but you know, when when you look for something, when when you have experienced a data breach in your network, in the average network, and you go looking, you hire somebody to go looking, you're probably going to find a whole bunch of stuff you had no idea about. And then the question becomes, which things were associated with the attack that you've detected, and which were completely coincidental and maybe indicative of other things that you had no idea was going on. Yeah, it's like when you start baselining 
network traffic on your environment with some sort of network monitoring tool. You'll find all sorts of crazy stuff you had no idea about. In the first six months, you're chasing all sorts of crazy stuff that is actually just normal. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, uh, like, oh my God, half my traffic is talking to the, some IP address in 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 the UK. No, that's just a badly configured piece of software. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that never happens. Yeah, never ever. All right. So, uh, moving on to our next story, and this one comes from Fox4KC.com. It's the it's a Kansas City uh, Fox News affiliate in uh, in Kansas City. And the title is Platt County Commissioners Give Treasurer One Week to Repay Funds Lost to Email Scam. Oh, wow. So um, the, the, the county treasurer, uh, a guy named Rob Willard, apparently received an email. And this, I guess, it was in the same vein as what we, you know, we've talked about in the past with the, you know, the, uh, the executive business email compromise scam. And uh, the 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 scam here was that the uh, this treasurer received what appeared to be an email from the uh, county commissioner, saying that he needed to uh, to pay forty eight thousand dollars in uh, state taxes, and it was like super urgent, and and so uh, uh, which you know it's always super urgent in these scams. So isn't it? It, it, it well it has to be right. 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 Got to get their money. Yeah, that, and this, by the way, goes to a common tactic for social engineering is that sense of urgency. Right. So anyway, uh, the, the commissioner trans, transferred the funds from their account, their bank account, to Wells Fargo as instructed in the email. And then apparently a couple hours later, the, the, the treasurer was talking to the commissioners, you know, joking about that $48,000 tax bill. And I'm guessing... The uh, the treasurer had that really really bad sinking feeling, like in the in the pit of your stomach, like what the hell have I done? And uh, yeah, so uh, so they they uh, contacted the bank, and I guess they were able to get back about twenty eight thousand dollars, and um, that left twenty thousand dollars. So what's interesting here is that the, the county's basically gone to the uh, to the treasurer saying, hey, you have um, you have a week. To pony up that twenty thousand bucks, you know, however you're gonna do it, or we're gonna, you know, or or, or you're gonna have to pay it. And it, now that's where it gets a little weird, right? Because this, the commissioner, I guess, I guess all of the the county uh, commissioners must have a, a an insurance bond, and so it sounds like if he doesn't pony up, it's it's not that he's gonna pay for it out of his pocket. It's gonna hit his uh, his no, the, the way I read it is he can pony up, or they will then file a claim against his bond. Yeah, his surety right. bond. Right. The other thing that's interesting too is that uh, this commissioner um, or this treasurer uh, has fully admitted that he did not follow proper protocol in transferring the money. So, to be fair against you know to this particular treasurer though this is a common tactic that's being used very effectively by the bad guys right now so i don't know what do you think do you think this is reasonable for them to go after this particular treasurer well i mean I, clearly it's because he he effectively violated <clears throat> their uh, i mean i in effect they they actually say that the second to last paragraph it's kind of interesting because they effectively say they've gone to the county prosecutor, and the 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 subtext there is you know to to explore whether the the prosecutor wants to explore charges against uh, this this treasurer, which you know, that's a that's a an interesting area of craziness too. I mean, I don't want to be harsh about this, but he got scammed, you know, and yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're gonna start. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a tough one for me. I don't I don't think this is right. I think I I think these guys don't understand how common this is in in the world right now, and that this is a well honed attack. Now, sure, the guy might have violated uh, their procedures, and that's bad, and perhaps he should be fired or censored or disciplined. But to force him to pay back the money, I think is it's pretty harsh. Well, especially since he had, I suspect he was in. 
you know, in, in his own way, I think he was acting, I, I suspect, he believed he was acting in good faith on behalf of, you know, his his employer. I, I you know, I, I don't, certainly doesn't seem like he was at any ill will. It seemed like yeah. he was trying to do, and I mean, look, people make mistakes all the time, you know. it. It's look, true. You chose me as a co-host. Well, <laughs> that's very true. But, you know, it's, we we see we see public servants make far more serious mistakes all the time. I mean, how many times do, in recent times have we heard about, you know, a police officer killing the wrong person or someone no, on accident? Not, uh, no, you're no. Wrong with this topic, buddy. It, but point is, point is, in the execution of their job duties, no mis- pun intended. mistakes are, you know, mistakes made in a, you know, in the capacity of doing their normal jobs, usually have, uh, you know, have, have avoided stuff like this. So I, it's, it's just, it doesn't, it well, doesn't mesh. And that's why I think he has a surety bond. True. What I don't understand is, and maybe, maybe there's more to this story, right? Maybe they're going, look, this is why you have a surety bond, but we're giving you the option for us to not file against it. So maybe it's, kind of, I don't know, jack all about surety, surety, surety bonds. So that could I'm be. You're right. Completely talking out of my ass here. But it could be like filing against your auto claim insurance where your rates are going to go up. So maybe there's a maybe there's a legitimate reason that they're giving him this option that has no, less to do with punitive reasons than it did giving him the choice of, hey, if you don't want this to go to your surety bond because this has some other consequence we don't know about. Uh, you got, and again, I don't know. I'm just I'm reaching yeah. here. Apparently, he also has to pay uh, expenses incurred by the, the county on this uh, episode, including uh, – Ta- attorney fees so well that's probably what they would go to the surety bond for probably yeah. the same amount of money right so anyway um point is this is becoming a very well honed thing it's it's impacting all reaches of society i mean this is a this is a county government and I, i'm not even sure by the way that this guy is uh a full-time employee. <laughs> the other day, some kids on the street me were having a lemonade stand. <laughs> 80 cents scammed out of them sent to a scammer. Wow. It's terrible. That's uh, that's something. So uh, moving on Nothing to to our, uh, our last story, which comes from abc.net.au. And the title is Software Legal Battle Could Put SA Patient Safety at Risk. Government Outlines in Court Documents. SA, by the way, being South Australian. That's right. So we're talking about down under. So the uh, the South Australian government apparently is um, they have a network of of sixty four county hospitals and and health centers that have been using this really old MS DOS based patient care software system. Uh, since the sometime in the 90s, and and I guess they've resisted all manner of uh, attempts to get them to upgrade, <laughs> and and uh, their license. The the reason this is uh, is news is not because you know oh my god they're running MS DOS. It's because apparently their their license to use that particular software expired in uh, I believe in March or May or just sometime earlier this year. And so now they're uh, effectively being sued to uh, to discontinue use. And so now the the government's basically saying, you know, look, we we have to keep using this because otherwise it's uh you know it's patients' lives are at risk, which is really weird. This is a crazy story. So I actually went and did a bunch more research on this because I I it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So go through the story and then I'll kind of add in some of what I think I discovered. But Sure. So um, so uh, the software's name is Chiron, which I, sounds ominous, right? But <laughs> um, uh, they, um, they the, I guess the, the name of the software vendor is Working Systems and they... You, s- you know Chiron is from Greek mythology, by the way. I... I... I uh, it sounded familiar. Yes. Oh, and while we're on the topic of me interrupting you, I was going to look up Guccifer earlier. Yeah. He did plead guilty to two counts and is currently uh, awaiting um, sentencing in Virginia. Yep. So there you go. I knew it. Anyhow, um, 
And it, he he was uh, he was extradited from somewhere. If I, yes, he was in jail for seven years in Romania, and then he was extradited from Romania to the U.S., where he was indicted on federal charges. And in May of this year, he pleaded guilty uh, in federal court to two charges. This, according to the Wikipedia page, so take that for what it's worth. Yeah. Oh, he's probably not editing it where he's at. I'm guessing. So anyway, uh, the, the, the maker of the software, Working Systems, sent a demand that the uh, the state government, the South Australian state government, stop using their software because their license expired in March. Actually, it was March of 2015. I take that back. And uh, the government is, uh, is, is effectively going to fight them in court saying that no, we're not, you know, we, we have a, um, you know, humanitarian case here. We are, um, we are not going to comply with, with that. We're going to keep using it because, uh, it's, it's apparently too hard, too painful and will, I guess, cause lots of people to die if they, uh, if they upgrade. Uh, let's see. So, um, yeah, working system said, any risk related to patient safety was the government's fault, by the way, because it had failed to plan and refused to sign uh, sign up for updated software 13 years ago in 2003 when this one this piece of software was replaced. So um, it's really this is this is a, a, a difficult story to wrap my head around from an IT perspective. I think from a if you if you look at this from a non-IT perspective, it probably makes a little more sense. But you know, this is um, this is old stuff. I mean, it's it's DOS. It's a DOS program from the '90s. It's probably not even vulnerable to anything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because it's so old. Uh, so, I went and did some looking at this. I was very intrigued by this concept. I can certainly see the situation from a regulatory standpoint and from a best practices and policy standpoint why it's a bad idea to run out of support software. I get that. But it's common, at least in the U.S., to do that. And, and in general, the manufacturer doesn't care. They're like, well, you're not getting any patches. And you're on your own. Piss off. But these guys are actually going to court. The vendor is forcing their customer to stop using this application. So... I was curious about this, and I and I did some more investigation. At least, you know what what little time I had before the show, uh, on 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 you know using the wonderful services of Google. And what I found is actually the company that makes this is called Global Health. And what's interesting that I sort of got from this in their their press releases is that they apparently have been trying to get these particular hospitals off this application for a while now and, and yeah going back all the way to 2003 but also in the last year or two uh and it seems to me reading between the lines is that they are going to be forced to support this as long as they're running it and so what they're trying to say is you're our only customer running this we, we sorry to, to lose you but we need to shift our resources into other things interesting so so quoting from one of the press releases, the ability to finally retire Chiron through the minister's decision will enable the company to refocus our resources on accelerating the master care cloud-based PS version that is currently in development of the global hospital market. So reading between the lines, it seems like they're forced to maintain support as long as the, the businesses are using it, at least perhaps maybe just the healthcare businesses, uh, as opposed to just cutting them loose. So that may be why they're going to to court over it. So I, I wonder then, just given what you just described, if it's kind of the other way where, you know, the the, the vendor is kind of walking away saying, <laughs> you know, you're on your own. And, uh, and, and the government is taking that company to court saying, nope, we got it. We're going to keep using it and you're going to keep supporting us. That's kind of what uh, it sounds like. That would make more sense, but that's not how any of the news is reading in this. Right. So if I go back and I look at here, um, I found another one here. Global Health and SA Health have since, uh, so last year, Global Health announced that it was finally retiring Chiron, planning to decommission on March 31st this year. However, South African Health, sorry, South 
Australian Health, wanted to continue using beyond the cessation date. Global Health and SA Health have since been disputing terms with Global Health threatening to take the SA Minister for Health to court, alleging infringement of copyright and breach of contract. Interesting. The, the spokesman for SA Health said the department is an ongoing dialogue with Global Health that remains confident in our ability to continue to use Chevron's offer without infringing copyright. So perhaps it's a copyright law issue. Um, it, well, it, yeah, maybe. It, it does say that in this in the in the story we we were originally referencing. There's a there's a paragraph in here. It says, according to court documents, the government argued without Chiron, hospital staff would not have access to critical information such as patient allergies to medication, and there was a potential for new patient data being lost or incorrectly recorded. And that was when working systems said that any any risk to patient safety was the government's fault because it had not planned uh, to to migrate. So it's kind of a little clear. I mean, it, this this particular article does make it sound like it's a copyright type case, but um, the other yeah, thing you read makes me wonder if that's the whole story, though. There's probably some aspect of South Australian law we don't understand. But I think the bigger picture here is the concept of organizations running old software that, that works for them. And I don't think that we've reached a comfortable stasis in that sort of give and take of, of a customer and a vendor. So in many ways, it sounds like this is almost like a managed services contract that they're trying to get out of. But at the same time, if it weren't a managed services contract, do we want our vendors to have the right to tell us, sorry, you can no longer run that software that you bought and paid for, or should say licensed for a period of time? It's an interesting sort of situation. In other words, if we buy into a piece of software are we then forced to continually upgrade that software or decommission it via the vendor? Well, I mean, this is this is something that comes up a lot on the show, but it, usually in the context of the big ERP systems that people ref, or that companies refuse to upgrade because they're you know it's that they spend a bunch of money configuring it on on a particular version and then. As subsequent versions come out to fix security vulnerabilities, it is incredibly difficult to to move forward. You know, you, it's not just applying a patch and then rebooting the server. You know, you you often right. have to rewrite code, and and um, I, I think this is a similar kind of a situation at some level because you know basically they've been they've been told, look, that old piece of software is is dead, and you need to move off to something new and the government you know, the, the the health system here is basically saying no it's too risky which is kind of sounds very similar to what we've heard on you know jboss and peoplesoft and oracle and sap and everything else hmm. so um i i think it, it just goes back to that point that when we make an it investment in some software it's it, it is a long-term thing it is you have to go into it understanding it's kind of like when you go buy a new car <laughs> and, right when you go buy a car every, we're all excited I, I just recently bought several new cars um and you know you that's that's because you're a rock star well no because i'm a parent of teenagers um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but uh you know you, you don't think about the full life cycle of the car when you go in to buy it, it's, you know, it's, it's new and exciting and shiny and you want to take it to the car wash and keep it all clean. But, you know, you know that in, uh, in, in six years, you're going to be like, I can't wait to get rid of this piece of crap. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's that sort of thing. You have to keep in, in perspective the whole life cycle of. Agreed. But, Ford isn't coming at you and suing you if you don't stop driving their car. Uh, that That's a, a good point. You're right. So this is an interesting one. I, and I really feel like we're ignorant of South Australian law to truly understand this, but there seems like there's more to this. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it certainly is. So anyway, uh, that is the show for this evening. Thank you for listening, and uh, thanks for your patience while we were 
away for a week. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And please hit us up on the Twitters. We enjoy talking with you all. And we're still amazed that you guys like to listen to our ramblings, but we're, uh, we're humbled and pleased that you do. Yeah. And uh, you can find links to the stories we talked about today on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. Look for episode 163. And uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg, that's L-E-R-G, and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we'll talk again next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.